Bitcoin. At this point, you probably know what Bitcoin is. Created in 2009, this cryptocurrency took the internet by storm, making some people millionaires overnight. But for all that we know about the premier cryptocurrency, there are questions that still puzzle the internet to this day. Who created it? What happened to them? And what might they intend to do with their untouched stash of Bitcoin worth $9 billion? This is The Red Web. Welcome back to another episode of The Red Web. I'm your resident mystery enthusiast, Trevor Collins, and with me as always is Alfredo Diaz. Hello, hello. I am the one that is easily frightened, and I'll be asking all the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, so since you're like my gut check on these things, I would love to hear your first impression on Bitcoin, the creator, this mystery that we're about to dive into today. It's just... What? Like, why is there a mystery <laughs> around Bitcoin? Right? Is there a mystery behind everything now? Like, I know. Tell me about the mystery behind Chuck E. Cheese, okay? Because Ooh. I grew up in the ball pit, and let me know. If there's a mystery behind Chuck E. Cheese, I want to know about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, get down in there. To it. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. There's a mystery behind, I guess, the creators of Bitcoin. That altogether just sounds so interesting because the whole idea of Bitcoin was it was pretty fascinating when that started becoming a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. Like, like you're saying, a lot of people became rich and from what I'm hearing is like $9 billion. That's just kind of left to the wayside. Yeah, it's insane. I figured I knew as much as you can know about a cryptocurrency without getting really technical. I figured, oh, it's just Bitcoin. It's a it's a decentralized currency, right? But yeah. uh, as Christian, our producer, and I were starting to dive into this, I figured this might be a short mystery, but this just kind of opened up. There's a lot of really interesting nuances here and uh, I kind of want to just dive into it. Show me, show me. And tell me how, like, where is the map? <laughs> Give me the map that we can try and find this $9 billion. <laughs> like, I guess, hard, what would it be on a hard drive? A, a, a floppy disk? <laughs> is there a riddle we could solve? How do we, how do we get into this? So... All right, we're, we're going to be taking a very cursory look at the history of Bitcoin to give some background and understanding here. There are a lot of influences and details that we will gloss over, with our focus mainly being on the mystery of a man or person named Satoshi Nakamoto. However, if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you all listening to look up more information about the people, the groups, and the projects that we're going to be discussing today. And don't worry, we're not going to get lost in the weeds of describing code and cryptography if that isn't your thing. I know that they can be very dry. So we'll do a quick background check on Bitcoin before diving into this this person, Satoshi Nakamoto. I do want to say, though, before we go too far into Satoshi Nakamoto, I want to preface this again with um, I'm going to try to use the pronoun they as we're not exactly sure who this person is, if they're a woman, man, or a group of individuals. Though due to the nature of the name in Japan, it is a masculine name. And so there might be instances where I say he or his, but I want to keep it as open as possible because this hasn't been solved yet. So the Bitcoin.org domain name was registered back in August of 2008. And then in October, actually on Halloween in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto published a white paper called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system on a cryptography mailing list known as the Cypherpunks couple things here. A white paper, just by definition, is an authoritative report or a guide that often addresses issues and how to solve them. And then the cypherpunks were an activist group influenced by a man named David Chom, 
who was a computer scientist and cryptographer, and he wrote a paper called Blind Signatures for Untraced Payments, which then led to the creation of DigiCash in the 90s, which was an anonymous payment system. So essentially, the cyberpunks were advocating widespread use of strong cryptography and privacy-enhancing technologies as a route for social and political change. Effectively, folks that were just way ahead of their time when it came to technology and computers, because this went back into the 80s and carried on through the 90s. So definitely ahead of their time. And it's very clear that Satoshi knew about this group and was actually active among them, considering this is how he published his white paper. Yeah, I mean, these guys, I mean, I know how to build a computer and troubleshoot it, but these guys are out here writing like all kinds of code and right. and just like you were saying, way ahead of their time. And it just everything that you're talking about just seems like ideas and thoughts that would just go way above my head, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Super complicated stuff, but that's like your 80s when you picture a hacker, like that's these people. <laughs> yep. Old computer, just green text. That's uh -huh. all you're seeing. And just uh -huh. click, 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 click. Staying up late in Hot Pockets. You know, well, that's me. But, you know, that's a hacker too, perhaps. That's uh, hacker fuel right there, <laughs> Hot Pockets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We've all been there. Uh, but then fast forward a couple months into January of 2009. On the 3rd, Nakamoto releases Bitcoin as an open source software. And the first block of the chain was mined. This is also known as the Genesis block or block zero. Embedded in this Coinbase transaction was a message. It said, the times 03 slash Jan slash 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. Now, this serves as a timestamp for the transaction, but it's also interesting because the times is a newspaper based out of London, and this references a headline from that very same date, essentially embedding his commentary on the 2008 financial crisis within the very first transaction of this new currency. You can also find what actually took a couple years for this to be found, but this message or this Easter egg was also found embedded in the code of the cryptocurrency in a hexadecimalized version, which essentially just means the English was translated into a bunch of numbers and letters. So it was very interesting to find that. And a lot of people think that this is perhaps the nod to the true purpose of Bitcoin, maybe commentary on the modern banking system and what he's really after with Bitcoin. And that, I mean, that doesn't surprise me, right? Anyone that's writing code or, or things like that, you know, I would assume, right, uh, that they would want to leave a piece of themselves, kind of like a mark or, yeah. you know, like an artist would want to leave a watermark. The same thing, a coder would want to leave a piece of themselves on that code. For sure. That doesn't surprise sure. me one bit. And then it took a couple of days, but uh, as of January 12th, 2009, it was the first transaction of Bitcoin. Uh, a man by the name of Hal Finney was the first recipient of 10 Bitcoins bequeathed to him uh, from Nakamoto himself. And that is the quick and dirty background check here on Bitcoin. Once again, if you want to look a little deeper, I highly encourage you to do so. It's a very nuanced and complicated topic. But this is just enough meat to get you into the mystery of Satoshi Nakamoto. So let's talk more about him. Yeah, I'm going to have to dive into that uh, a little bit during my free time because, like, it's pretty interesting, like, creating your own virtual currency and then the steps that it would take not only to, to create that, but also get that out there, something that's valuable and that, you know, making it become an actual thing. Like, it's, oh, it's mind-boggling to me. 
It's like it's a genius level sort of intellect right. required to do something like this. But he's built on a lot of other papers and theories over the course of the decades until this moment. And it's and it's argued that perhaps he just happened to land at the right time when people were open to it mm-hmm. as technology was getting more understood and more widespread. There's a lot involved there. So Satoshi Nakamoto, they began working on Bitcoin in 2007, and it is very clear that they had a deep understanding of coding the C++ language in particular, cryptography, and of course, economics. And to this day, we're estimating, and I say we, we're not the experts, we're just enthusiasts. However, many people on the internet estimate that they have roughly 980,000 Bitcoins still in their Bitcoin wallet, which is an insane volume for anybody to have. So much money. I know. And the way they got to that conclusion was essentially looking at the first year of Bitcoin. Not a whole lot of people were in those early days. Very, very few people mined Bitcoin at the time. And so they're looking at how many were mined and how many of those in that first year have not been touched or spent since. And that is all verifiable because when you look at blockchain currencies like Bitcoin, all the transactions are entirely public and traceable. You know, every it's a blockchain, and you might have heard that phrase before, but essentially every block contains, and this is my very dumb understanding of it, but essentially from the very beginning to the most recent Bitcoin mind, there is a timeline. They are all linked together in time. And so everything is traceable in public. But that amount of Bitcoin, it's worth today roughly $9.1 billion, which is insane to think about. Oh, I would just go to so many charities and just drop all that off. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like $9 billion, you don't need that much money just a couple uh, buckaroos next generations don't need that much money that you you know your grandkids your great great grandkids just donate the hell out of it right that's like nations deal with money of that size mm-hmm. this is a one-man army right here so <laughs> help bail out america <laughs> <laughs> here's a couple bitcoin do yourself a favor and get out of that <laughs> hole pal so what's really interesting here is that uh a lot of these early year bitcoins have not moved at all. But as of the release of this podcast, just about two months ago on May 20th, 2020, it appears that 50 Bitcoins were transferred to new recipients. These Bitcoins were from those early days, Bitcoins that had been sitting idle effectively for 11 years. Yes, these were Bitcoins originally mined on February 9th, 2009. So once again, very few people were mining at this time. So this either means that it was a very early developer, such as Hal Finney, who we just mentioned, or his family rather, because he is no longer with us, or someone by the name of Marty Malmi, or perhaps Satoshi Nakamoto himself. And I always thought that the fact that he had almost a million Bitcoin just frozen, not doing anything with it, raised a lot of questions. But the fact that now suddenly a couple of them have trickled out into the world only seems to have raised more questions among everybody paying attention. Right, because that's his own personal wallet, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so... Ooh, yeah, like who's, right? Like who's uh, sending that out? Like how are people obtaining a slice of that? Right, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of questions really as to perhaps why he's still sitting on it or what he's going to do with it. But we'll kind of get into some of those questions and a little bit of those theories a little bit later. Fast forward a couple months. It's November 13th, 2009. Satoshi registered their P2P foundation account. P2P standing for peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer, yeah. On this account, they list their birth date as April 5th, 1975, and that they live in Japan. So that would put them at 45 as of today. 
And looking at his activity and comments and threads on the website, they're thought to be British because the spellings and the way they speak, uh, the fact that they use double spacing after periods, and other grammatical instances within the language seem to line up with British English versus that of American English. And what I found was interesting was that I remember when I was a kid, I was taught double space. Uh, I had an older teacher and they taught you to double space after the period, which I then very quickly learned was not the way to do it. And I think that that is a hangover from the old typewriter era because on a typewriter, that was the way to go uh, for the sake of legibility and understanding when a sentence began or ended. And so this either verifies that Satoshi was 45 or therein, or perhaps older. So I think that in this one passive instance, you can actually start to verify some pieces of their identity. And then furthermore, I actually got very curious between British American and English American, and it turns out that Japan is one of the few countries that teaches American English versus British English. Oh, so where do you learn that from then? Right, so the fact that he is using a British English in Japan indicates that he's not a Japanese native and that's why perhaps people think he's British, but that also opens it up to Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, many other countries like that. So we haven't really pinpoint down where he's from, but just from the way this person is talking on the internet, it's amazing how you can start to try to decipher facts about them. Right. Almost like he's um, writing it, you know, with a with a pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting. It was really strange, too, because he never used uh, acronyms, well, unless it was code-based, and he never made misspellings. So he either had a spell check that perhaps was biased towards British, or he was very careful in the way that he went about speaking. Another interesting point here is that the term white paper that I referred to earlier is actually a more popular term among the UK and Ireland rather than any other speaking country. So this once again starts to hone it down into the British Isles being their point of origin. Interesting, but his name seems to be of Japanese descent though. Right, the name Satoshi Nakamoto though as we'll get into a little bit later, one of the theories is that it's actually a pseudonym, that it's a fake name and it doesn't line up with an actual human being. Of course, here mm -hmm. we go. Mm -hmm. Now we start diving into the rabbit hole. Fake names and identities and... So all your preconceived oh. notions, oh. throw them out the window. Okay, all right. Let me get another sheet of paper here in my mind <laughs> and jot all these new notes down. Put, store this away in your mind, palace. We're diving in. So. Satoshi Nakamoto was very active on cryptography mailing lists and forums promoting and discussing Bitcoin as you might, essentially being a herald for cryptocurrency, but specifically their own creation, Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2010, you might have heard of a website called WikiLeaks. Well, they were going through some funding trouble. And because of the scandal and the controversy surrounding that website, it was very unclear how or where it would get that funding. Essentially, any normal traditional way of getting funding would be punitive. If I were to swipe my credit card, say, hey, go for it, WikiLeaks, the government might start looking at you or looking at other businesses that are supporting the website. So then PC World came along and published an article highlighting the possibility that Bitcoin might be used to help fund WikiLeaks, uh, which then flooded Bitcoin and these forums with tons of attention which then Satoshi was quoted to have replied to this as saying, It would have been nice to get this attention in any other context. WikiLeaks has kicked the hornet's nest and now the swarm is heading towards us. And he made it very clear 
that he didn't want this much traction this quickly because it was a growing beta currency. This much traction too quickly could stifle the growth or even kill Bitcoin from the get-go. And it would also start to associate it with criminal activity given the nature of WikiLeaks. Yeah, right, because that's something, if it's still in beta, then it's in beta for a reason. Um, and it, if it's actual like currency, whether it's digital or something that's tangible, people are going to try and steal it. People are going to try it, uh, especially because digital hack into it, um, mm -hmm. anything of that nature. So I would assume he was just like, whoa, this is way too early. A lot of heat. I'm still rolling this out at my pace. And now you're forcing me to kind of like sprint where I need to get to. Exactly. And that led, well, Nakamoto to perhaps leave. This might have been the triggering instance that made him disappear. So Nakamoto did not like this level of attention. And at this point, he only made one more update to Bitcoin before then handing over the project to a, a person named Gavin Anderson. Fast forwarding now into January of 2011, Nakamoto made his last post on the P2P Foundation website. This was January 7th. And this would be his last post until a man named Dorian Nakamoto came onto the scene. And we will go a little bit further into who Dorian is and what that means once we get to the theories. Okay. All right. Gut instinct, family member. But secret <laughs> identities could still be him. He just turns around, <laughs> like does it's a 360. The, it's I'm not the Dorian best now. Of a new identity. You know what I mean? But like, who knows? <laughs> right. Oh my God. It's. Bob Diaz, whoa, our new co-host. You'll never expect it. <laughs> so after handing over the project, Satoshi maintained email correspondence with Gavin up until April 26, 2011, where he sent his final message via email. And he said, quote, I wish you wouldn't keep talking about me as a mysterious shadowy figure. The press just turns that into a pirate currency angle. Maybe instead make it about the open source project and give more credit to your dev contributors. It helps to motivate them. Nakamoto in general strongly opposed the idea of Bitcoin being used for criminal activities. Alas, Bitcoin was the primary currency on the Silk Road, which if you don't know what that is, it's a dark web marketplace for illicit substances and other black market contraband. So putting these two things together, the fact that he left his last post on the P2P Foundation website on January 7th, 2011, and he made his last email to the new project owner, Gavin Anderson, on April 26, 2011, one might think he didn't like the attention, how fast it was coming, mm -hmm. and perhaps that it was starting to be used for more nefarious purposes, which either would shatter the image that he wanted for Bitcoin, or perhaps just simply break it. Yeah, I mean, not everyone wants the attention, right? Like, uh, you know, we create content where our faces are all over the internet and our you know, personalities are out there and our stories are out there to the public um, with podcasting and, and what we do, but not everyone wants that life, you know? There's a lot of difficult things that come with that, whether it be going to a location and, and, and you know, people knowing who you are and where you're at, to you posting something and everyone having an opinion about it. So I could totally see where he's coming from in terms of just like, I just want to back out of this. Right. I just imagine a man named Jonathan Dollar. You know, he invented the United States dollar and off he goes to the store. Do you imagine the attention you would have at every level of society? You would have to be locked away, essentially, because you would always have this attention on you. Yeah. And then you'd also get idiots that 
think that you have complete and full access to, I don't know, a bajillion, kajillion dollars, or you can manipulate mm-hmm. the system in their favor. And maybe you can, maybe you can't, you know, it's a case by case basis, yeah. but you know, it you have people, people that are going to try and use you in that way. Yeah. They could use you for money. It might scare them that they think you have some sort of uh, high level control over what's going on. It's it's there's so many unknowns with something as complicated and as widespread now as Bitcoin is. So yeah, so instinctively, I'm sitting here thinking like he just didn't want the attention. He just there's bounced. nothing like nefarious about it whatsoever. Yeah. Well, we have a couple questions that I would love to kind of talk with you before we dive into the theories of who might be Satoshi Nakamoto or who they might be. Uh, so the first question, you kind of addressed this earlier, but one of the uh, prime ideas or one of the prime theories behind the name Satoshi Nakamoto and why that's the name that this person is going by, uh, many suspect that it's a pseudonym, that it's a fake name. And one of the popular theories among that is that it's an amalgamation of four Asian tech giants. So in order, that would be Samsung, Toshiba, Nakamichi, and Motorola. And so if you take the first syllable or two of each of those words, you end up with Sa, Toshi, Naka, Moto. Oh. Oh. Okay. Which is crazy. Is that? I mean, it might just be a really creative way to answer why this person might have a fake name. Or the person just came up with a really bomb-ass fake name. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I mean, I guess my, my question there would be, like, is that an actual name? Like, is that an actual first and last name that you would see, you know, from someone that's from Japan, right? Mm-hmm. Like, That's a good question. We might find out more about that. Because then, like, <laughs> if you think about it, like, I don't know, like, this is just me thinking right here, right now, like how would you make that happen in like an like an american name right without it mm-hmm. being like what no that's not normal that's a weird name that's a different name right it right. would stand out yeah that's that's a good point i mean it, let's see let's come up with one we got let's just pick a couple random let's use car companies mm-hmm. like what if tesla was named after let's see ford chrysler you're gonna have to help me out because i'm i'm okay. writing in my brain right now ford chrysler chevy what's another american car uh okay hold on uh, I'm, I'm kind of like writing down <laughs> oh, names a mustang mustang will be good i know it's not a, a a brand it's not a manufacturer but it is a model of a car and you need something in there with a with a vowel <laughs> i came up with tevi fonda <laughs> tevi fonda oh Tesla chevy tevi uh, fonda that's a beautiful name ford honda Tevi Fonda, right? Like <laughs> you could make a name out of it, but it would just—it seems so weird. Hey, don't talk crap about Tevi Fonda. That's the name of my child, Tevi Fonda. I feel like Tevi Fonda is our new Elon Musk. <laughs> Step back, Tesla. We got a new car on the market, the Tevi Fonda. <laughs> the Tevi. All right. So oh. there's also people asking the very obvious question: You got a million bitcoins. Why haven't you ever sold it? Why haven't you? donated it why isn't it moved in any fashion it's just sat there frozen and of course there's instances like well maybe he's just waiting for it to appreciate maybe he doesn't even care about getting rich into that i would say a lot of these coins were pre-mined essentially meaning he was first on scene he could mine as to his heart's content before he then offered it out to the world so why would somebody pre-mine upwards of a million bitcoins if the idea wasn't to have some level of currency down the way. I mean, if I was Jonathan Dollar and I was saying, hey, government, send this money out to everybody in the world, I might pocket, 
I don't know, a couple mil. I mean, yeah, you're still going to pocket something, right? Like you, you just in the, the thought of like not knowing what it could be or turn into. Even then, though, like someone who's just like, I don't care about money uh, or cars, fame, etc. They still care about food. They still want to eat. Right. right. Like and perhaps that good point, causes. Yeah. Like at that point, you know, to if you're just like, OK, I'm not on that side of the spectrum of like spend and, you know, just ball out. Mm-hmm. Then I would think that he'd want to donate. Right. He's on the other side of that. Just give it away. Mm-hmm. Um, or at the very least, just go, okay, I get to just travel or do my hobbies or maybe stay at home and do nothing. But like, you still have, like, there's still bills. There's still payments that need to be made. So yeah, to right. see none of that, you know, be used for anything at all is right. very weird. Right. I mean, perhaps there's other theories out there. Perhaps he lost access to it. Um, if you're not familiar with Bitcoin, it requires a public and private cryptographic key, essentially meaning... There's a public key out there, and then there's one private to you. And if you lose either of those, you essentially lose access to your wallet. Or if you toss your hard drive away, like the unfortunate sap that you might have heard about a few years ago who had, what, like 7,500 or so odd Bitcoin that he tossed oh, away? Yeah, mm. I heard about that. Ooh. I mean, it's not as bad as the $90 million pizza that somebody bought with 10,000 Bitcoins way back in the day either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be real with you. Like, if the key is like a code and you, you know, store it digitally, I would have like 10 flash drives, you know, and I would bury half of those and then the other half uh, have it stored somewhere safe, uh, you know, bank or vault, etc. So I, w- I would make sure that I had access to that somehow, some way. You got to make sure you never lose access to it. I, I would be inclined to tattoo it on the inside of my chest. I don't. I, I don't know. Like I don't, I'm. I lose everything. I mean, How am yeah, I gonna no. lose? Of course, I'm gonna lose a little strip of paper that's a bunch of numbers and letters. Oh God. I mean, yeah. It, it, we talked about earlier. It's like you know, we don't know if this is solved or not. But like to, it would suck to sit there and just go, Nah, he just didn't have access to it anymore. <laughs> <Right>? Nah, <laughs> he, he just lost it, in. man. It's gone. The key's gone, man. That's it. It's over. And what's crazy is that there will be a fixed number of Bitcoins at any given time. I think it's 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be on the market at any given time. And every Bitcoin that gets lost essentially adds value to all the other Bitcoins. So I think Satoshi himself somewhere in the forums basically stated that consider it a donation. If you lose your Bitcoins, it's a donation to everybody else, which I don't know how I would feel about that, but it is what it is. It wouldn't feel good. <laughs> uh, no, it would it would sting quite a bit. A couple other quick theories are that he might trickle it out over time. And this brings us back to the mysterious transaction back in May. We don't know if that was Satoshi or not, or who that might have been. But that might be the beginning of a trickling, essentially because if he were to dump a million Bitcoins all at once, it would crash the market. There would be a huge market correction because suddenly there's now another million Bitcoins available. Yeah, there's influx. Right. I don't think a Satoshi's inclined to crash his own coin. No, it seemed like he cares about it dearly with right. what I've been told so far. So do we not know if he's alive? I might be jumping ahead, but that's do we another not know thing. We, we just don't know. If he's alive or just no one knows where this guy's at? Yeah, he could, he could, uh, he could be dead at this point. We just don't know. You don't got like a MySpace page that we could pull up or something? Like a Zanga? <laughs> yeah, when, when everyone writes on his wall, rest in peace, Satoshi. I don't know who you were, but... Could you imagine you. his Zanga page? It'd be like the most decked out page you've ever seen, right? Zanga being, oh God, we're so old. Uh, Zanga being like an old kind of like blog website. Mm-hmm. This was before MySpace and Friendster. Just and harsh were... on the eyes. Just 
flashing colors and gifs and just disorganized html code yeah, everywhere glitter everywhere page wouldn't load <laughs> yeah no i mean this is to this oh, oh i'm flustered because this guy just like disappearing there's no right way to handle a million bitcoins you know this doesn't make any sense man there's just so much money like do something with it right right like, there's no right answer and that and that's why people are so confused because whether it whether he sits on it for forever or it starts to trickle out, it only raises more questions. And then when you think back to when Bitcoin spiked to like in American dollars, it hit twenty twenty one thousand dollars per Bitcoin. If he if he sold it all, then he would be one of the fifty richest people in the entire world, which is insane to think about. That is absolutely insane. People think that there might be safety concerns involved, but. You know, it makes me think there was a lot of early developers and a lot of other individuals who got very into Bitcoin. And then when they converted their Bitcoin to cash, they ended up being fine. That being said, he is the inventor, basically the creator of the modern cryptocurrency. Because all other coins are essentially, whether they're tied to it directly or not, they're tied to Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up, other coins tend to go up. If Bitcoin goes down, the others go down. So so it's it's a very unique situation that is hard to compare. It's hard it's hard to know what someone might do with with that level of of potential influence. Go to Mars, come back. Just a couple trips, a couple round trips, <laughs> you know. I don't know. Just drive your Tevi Fonda out, you know, <laughs> through space, past the Tesla off into Mars. <laughs> Dude, could you imagine just like yeah. Dude, that's, that's such Screw. a baller move. Just <laughs> Just drive Ooh. by and then just like scratch it with the Kia car <laughs> or something like that. Tevi Fonda rolling up next to a hill on Mars, sipping a Mai Tai. That's such a big oh. boy move. Man, all right. So we're getting close to the theories. And I want to say one, like a couple more questions that surround the Bitcoins in May. We just don't know. Where did they go? Who did they come from? And why now? Why after 11 years? And does it have anything to do perhaps with COVID, with the lockdown, with the way the market was hit? Does it have anything to do with any of that? Or are we just, you know, reading tea leaves, essentially? Wait, so after 11 years of this money, um, this cryptocurrency, this Bitcoin being untouched, you're telling me this year, 2020? Yep. A little bit of it just got shaved off? Just a little. May? A that was like last month, dude. It was 50 Bitcoins just kind of what went out. And, and no one really knows essentially who it was, man. People think it might be Satoshi. People think it might be oh, uh, so Hal fresh. Finney's family. You know, it, it could be could be a number of instances. But So wait, we can't trace it? You can trace it, but you don't know essentially... There are signatures involved with, with transactions like this. And all of the transactions are very public. And to my understanding... Essentially, we don't know who it came from. We can't pinpoint that down, nor can we pinpoint who it's going to unless either of those parties comes forward and says, hey, that's my signature. That's my hash identity. Right. We just know the source. Right. We just know that it happened. And we know that they are Bitcoins from a wallet dating back to early 2009 when all this really started. Oh, so it might not even be um... Satoshi. Satoshi. So it, it might not even be his stat, their stash. Yeah. And just in case, I will reiterate some of the popular uh, ideas are, yeah, that it's Satoshi Nakamoto themselves or one of the very first developers, such as Hal Finney. It would have to be his family because, once again, he's unfortunately passed away or someone like Marty Malmi, who this is the only instance where we'll be talking about him in the, in the podcast, but he was another heavily involved player in the very early stages of Bitcoin. 
Mm, okay. All right. So essentially to wrap up what we know about Satoshi before we get into perhaps who Satoshi might be, we know that they have a fake name. We know that they used the Tor browser to hide their data, to prevent any sort of tracking, to increase anonymity. And then when purchasing the domain in the very beginning, they used a prepaid credit card. So it was very clear that they wanted to stay anonymous and maintain that, which is very difficult to do nowadays with everything being tracked. But again, as I kind of indicated earlier, by simply interacting with people online, by simply talking to people, you can really start to pinpoint a lot of things. The way they use language, the way they type, the way they condone themselves and conduct themselves, it really starts to help line up a couple of, of facts that we know about the person and the way they present themselves. And that leads into a couple of theories on candidates that we have. And I'll kind of go in order of the most prominent or the most high profile, and then touch on a couple other people that we don't know a whole lot about. There's not a whole lot of connective tissue between these individuals and Satoshi, but there are some intriguing tidbits that are worth consideration. Yeah, they're still suspects. Yeah. So this is where we have Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto, candidate number one and the most high profile suspect of this topic. This individual was trained as a physicist and later worked as an engineer, but they have no background in cryptography and they do not write in British English. They lived actually a few minutes away from Hal Finney, which if you recall was the individual who received 10 Bitcoins as part of the first transaction ever right. from Bitcoin. And Newsweek first made the claim that Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto was the individual by interviewing him. And during this in-person interview, the journalist Leah McGrath Goodman asked him about his work between 2007 and 2009. And the response that Dorian gave was, quote, I am no longer involved in that and I cannot discuss it. It's been turned over to other people. They are in charge of it now. I no longer have any connection. However, while that does sound damning, it does sound like that lines up with what Satoshi Nakamoto himself did. In a follow-up interview, Dorian here denied that he had any involvement with Bitcoin, and he stated that he misinterpreted the question to be about his actual previous work, which he identified as classified at the time, but in subsequent interviews, he revealed that it was actually work for Citibank, which makes sense. I mean, he doesn't yeah. have a background in cryptography, but in watching these interviews, he does seem to be telling the truth. It just seems that, unfortunately, it was kind of a leading question that was looking for a specific response, and his genuine, authentic response happened to be vague enough that it correlated with what one might expect from right. the actual Satoshi Nakamoto. And the fact that his name, or at least his middle and last name, line up exactly is what really tipped people towards him anyway. And so when this Newsweek article came out, it really blew up and people started like he was doxxed immediately. People were going to his house with cameras in his face. And he's he's essentially just repeating himself saying, I have nothing to do with this. This isn't me. I don't know anything about Bitcoin. I can't answer your questions. And uh, and just for for the timeline's sake, this article was released on March 6, 2014, which is very funny because on March 7th, 2014, the original account on the P2P Foundation website made another post after ghosting a few years prior, saying, I am not Dorian Nakamoto. So, some Whoa. claimed that Nakamoto's account was hacked and that this was not sent by him. However, 
given what we seem to understand about the original Nakamoto, he seems authentic, he seems genuine, and he seems like he might want to protect this individual from the sudden global gaze that, and, and all this attention, almost negative attention that he was suddenly getting. And so I think that kind of compelled the original Satoshi to step forward and say, hey, I'm not Dorian Nakamoto, leave that individual alone. However, a few months later, in September 8th of 2014, an administrator from the P2P Foundation website claims that he or she received an email from Satoshi's original email, uh, which is satoshin at gmx.com, which that was his original email that his white paper had listed that his account was made under, but the admin indicated that it was very clear to them that this was a hacked email, that the language that they used seemed to indicate that this was not the original Satoshi. And that day, Satoshi Nakamoto's account on P2P made the following post. Quote, Dear Satoshi, your docs, passwords and IP addresses are being sold on the dark net. Apparently you didn't configure Tor properly and your IP leaked when you used your email account sometime in 2010. You're not safe. You need to get out of wherever you are as soon as possible before these people harm you. Thank you for inventing Bitcoin. That message was revealed to be from a hacker, obviously, who then managed to get access from Satoshi's old email, which maybe was dead or was left open or was in fact uh, hacked in order to access. But when they revealed screenshots from behind the scenes, effectively the inbox from this email address, you could see that there was an email on September 8th, 2014, that was a password reset request from P2P, essentially confirming that the hacker didn't get access to this email until September 8th. So there's no reason why the post saying, I am not Dorian Nakamoto back in March was from a hacker. So it still seems like back in March, Satoshi did in fact sign back in to claim, hey, I'm not Dorian. And mm -hmm. then the hacker just happened to get into play. It seemed to kind of muddy the waters for a little bit, but just lining a few things up, yeah. it seems like it was legit back in March, no longer legit here in September. That's like, that seemed, oh man. I mean, obviously this is all just speculation, but that seemed to have like escalated so fast, right? Like Right. That this person is like yeah his, his ip address got out because you know he made a you know a coding mistake somewhere or a mm -hmm. misstep and and now the dark web has access to a bunch of his information but like I, look i get it the dark web it's dark okay but like <laughs> why turn the light on? on you know what i mean there's no lights down there light bulbs don't <laughs> exist in the dark web okay <laughs> but like why why are they coming after this man like right i mean uh, the obvious theory is that you know they want and they get to him they get to a bunch of bitcoin um but still that's just man that's is it just that simple like just like hey bad people they want right. chica's money well it turns out like long story short it turns out that this blackmail essentially was not legit some some individuals tried to extort the, basically the general public for this information. They, I think they said uh, for 25 Bitcoin, I'll release all this information. That person ultimately got about one, maybe one and a half Bitcoin. People didn't really fall for it. They still released the screenshots that they had and it turned out it wasn't anything. It was just some poor sap in Missouri who happened to use Satoshi's email for fun on an online order. So really nothing of consequence happened here. 
But that's ultimately where Dorian's story ends. You know, it's it's hard to say, you know, there's a lot of things that line up, but I'm pretty confident just based on a couple of key facts here that Dorian isn't the key suspect, just an unfortunate circumstance that happened to line him up. And that leads us to Craig Wright, who is the next individual that I want to focus on as a potential candidate. So I'll just give a, a couple of pieces of information here, maybe a, a small timeline, but essentially in December 2015, Wired and Gizmodo both suggested that Wright is Satoshi. And then in May 2016, BBC and The Economist claimed that Wright had digitally signed messages using cryptographic keys from the early days of Bitcoin. And then that same day, a blog post on drcraigwright.net posted a message with that very same cryptographic signature, and supposedly that was proof that this is uh, Satoshi. This was later revealed to be unreliable. Wright had reused a signature from 2009, a transaction by Satoshi himself, so perhaps he was just copying it to say that that is proof. But Wright actually continues to claim that he is in fact Satoshi. He says that saying that Bitcoin's creation was a group effort. However, he cannot provide verifiable proof. So then fast forward to 2019, he attempted to sue people for libel who denied his claim of inventing Bitcoin. And then in April of 2019, he actually tried to copyright the white paper that Nakamoto released in the very early stages for Bitcoin 0.1. And then Gavin Anderson, the person that Satoshi had passed Bitcoin onto as a project, once vouched for Wright, stating that he provided a cryptographic signature from the very first block mined, which would then say, hey, that's uh, that's Satoshi. But then later on, Gavin rescinded that, saying, well, I I might have been tricked. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure. So now we have an individual who's, who's screaming from the rooftops, hey, I am Satoshi, there are other people involved, I'll sue you if you say I'm not, but they can't really provide any evidence other than this signature, which many people think, well, it could be, it could be falsified, it could be spoofed, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah, I don't believe it. I just don't. What's giving you that gut feel? It's What's such a them huge character change, right? right? Like, this, you go from, obviously... I don't know this individual's life and there could be certain things that happen over the course of uh, days or years that would make them, you know, have a different perspective on everything. But I just don't see it. It just from one end of the spectrum of like not wanting to spend anything to just like, I am that person. And then going as far as to, I will sue the shit out of everybody. Right. right? Like, like, come on. That just, that's such a huge, just like changing character. And obviously it's been what, maybe like 10 years, 11 years at this point, but yeah, I think by it the time that he so was drastic. on the table, it had been six years or so. But, I mean, to go from being very careful about your digital footprint to suddenly suing people and screaming that you're Satoshi and that there's other people involved, it you're right. It is a very dramatic shift in character. And it's not unplausible, right? It's totally yeah. feasible, but we just it, don't it know. It is. But, I mean, that accompanied with the fact that there's just not even, like, a lick of evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, it, when you create something, I mean, there is years and years of, like, uh, paperwork and, and a digital trail and messages and all, the, all that kind of stuff where it's just, like, there's not anything. There's no proof of this whatsoever, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. That just seems so odd to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't believe it. So we have a couple more individuals here that are intriguing. The the not as much connective tissue as, as perhaps these previous two, but there's still there's still some meat there. So I want to discuss them. And Hal Finney is that next person. Once again, the first transaction 
the first receiver of, of Bitcoin, and he was actually a fellow cypherpunk. And he first found Nakamoto's work through the original mailing list. And this person was a developer for PGP Corporation, which stands for Pretty Good Privacy. Essentially, they created PGP encryption for data communication. Very early stages of cryptography and kind of keeping your data safe as you emailed, texted, uh, what have you, from computer to computer. And, and they were actually the first person that Nakamoto recruited to work on developing Bitcoin. And Hal had agreed to work for free and eventually was the recipient of the first ever Bitcoin exchange. And then people actually started comparing writing samples of Nakamoto's and Hal's. And there actually was a very close resemblance. Once again, with that double space after the period, the British spelling, etc. No misspellings. Hal actually made a decent amount of money mining Bitcoin in the early days, but unfortunately, due to uh, complications of ALS, Hal Finney passed away on August 28th, 2014, and I think he actually cryogenically froze himself because, you know, he just had one of those minds that was very forward-thinking and very interested in new and emerging technologies. So, if this person is Satoshi, there's no way to really know unless his family knows in some way, and that's pretty much the meat and potatoes of how he might connect to Satoshi here. Yeah, that brought up an interesting thought too, that there's just so many layers of trust that go into this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you are Satoshi being your friends, your family, uh, the people you work with, it's just that so many layers of just like, hey, don't tell anyone, right? Or maybe he didn't tell anyone that he was doing, or majority of the people in his life that he was, you know, creating this, but I don't know. It's just insane. Could you imagine if your your mother reached out to you and said, hey, by the way, I created Bitcoin. Here's a hundred thousand. Enjoy. Like, could you imagine like someone in your family had done something so world changing and perhaps just kept it a secret? Yeah, I'd be like, nah, who'd you? What bank you rob? What's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> Mama Diaz, what are, what, are you, what are you getting into? This, this, is like a, this is like a whole like 30 year like uh, long game you got going on here. You, you weren't that <laughs> nah, you weren't that smart behind the scenes. You keep that from me. No way. I didn't That's see a no, long con. I didn't, see, I didn't see no coding books or shit in the house. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, that leads us to the next candidate, Nick Zabo. So just like Finney, they had their writing samples compared to Nakamoto's and it found a very strong resemblance. Nick was also a cryptocurrency enthusiast and actually created his own called BitGold, which was a precursor to Bitcoin. And his work was actually referenced later on in Satoshi's writings. Not necessarily the white paper, but in other writings later on and in forum posts and other things like that. But Christian, I know you have um, some extra information on that. Yeah, so one of the, the main theories for that was because Satoshi didn't reference Nick Szabo's work, people assumed that Satoshi and Nick Szabo were one and the same. But because he later referenced him as he went further and further into the project, and the popular theory from then on was just that Satoshi wasn't aware of Zabo's work at first, and that was the reason he excluded him. Gotcha. So maybe he found out after having done the deed and kind of back-referenced him. Yeah, as Bitcoin grew and other people became involved, like Zabo became heavily involved in Bitcoin. So some people think that as that relationship developed, that's when Satoshi uh, learned about Zabo's work. That makes sense, right? That's interesting. So there's like two ways to take that. It could be that they're the same person, or, or it could provide proof that they are in fact distinctly different individuals yeah i mean if there's anything that i've like 
learned it's it doesn't matter who invented it first it's first to market right like mm. there's there's a long history of people who have gotten credit for inventing things but when you really dive deep into stuff it's like no there are other people who previously made it um before them but since said person was first to market that's why they're known for that that's where they're known as the inventor right mm -hmm. so that, yeah that would make sense so there's some like really interesting like obviously having made bit gold there is some small but compelling evidence as to how nick zabo might be in play um but that leads to the next candidate that i want to talk about adam back he had a PhD in distributed computing systems, and he was very proficient in C++, which is the language used for Bitcoin. Back is actually referenced in Satoshi's first writings, including the white paper. Satoshi claimed to have correspondence with Back, but while there is record of his correspondence with everyone else, there is no record of his conversation with Back. It's the very same thing, like, you don't see me and Batman in the same room at any given time. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I, I don't know, I might be Batman. He had knowledge of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin's development process, including a small bug from early in its life. Although according to public records, website join dates, things like that, he did not get involved with Bitcoin until around 2013, which was well after its popularity, well after it had taken off from the early days. And he claimed not to pay attention to Bitcoin when it first released. I mean, to me, like a, you could take that multiple ways, right? Where um, it's a little odd, right? Someone that is kind of like in that world mm -hmm. um to sit there and go you know what i'm not even this is in it even in like bitcoin's early stages to go i'm not gonna get involved with this whatsoever that's a little seems a little weird then again playing devil's advocate maybe it was kind of like a you know a, a, a jealousy thing where it's just like oh this is was something that i was working on and now here's someone else just like their version of it is growing popular. It's blowing up. It's it's first to market. And so I just, no, I just, no. I don't want to do nothing with it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to see it. Right. Set it and forget it. Yeah. So I wasn't really getting, I don't know, like, but the evidence or, you know, what you've been telling me, I can't really sway myself one way or another, but. Yeah. The theories for back mainly come from, there, there, there are more pieces of evidence, quote unquote, but it just get, starts to get so convoluted. There's talk of like coups and replacing Bitcoin with a different cryptocurrency. And I just, for the sake of time, didn't want to dive into all that. So the basic premise behind Back is he claims to be interested in cryptocurrency, decentralized currencies like that. But he said that he didn't pay attention to Bitcoin when it first released. He didn't join the website, the Bitcoin Talk Forum, until 2013. That's when he started getting publicly involved, but he still seemed to have intimate knowledge of Bitcoin and its development process, like the bug that Trevor mentioned. It was a very small, almost unnoticeable bug. It was patched out years before. And so the general theory is, if he didn't get involved until so much later, why does he still have so much knowledge of Bitcoin? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, he's just one of those cases that has a lot of hidden detail and, and perhaps would be worth a whole separate discussion in and of itself. I know some other podcasts and, and other video essay creators like to focus on each of these individuals as their own theory. And so while we're kind of glossing over some of the details, we're looking for the biggest connective tissue between these individuals and what we know but there is certainly a very deep web of information behind everybody here and how they might continue to connect further with the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. Right. But that leads us to the last one here. 
in that it isn't an individual at all. In fact, it's a pseudonym for a team of people, somewhat like Shakespearean, like some people believe Shakespeare is a, a collective of people. So John McAfee, who was a British-American computer programmer and businessman, uh, cr the creator of McAfee, if you've heard of the antivirus right, software. Right, antivirus software. He claims that it was a team of 11 people who developed Bitcoin, which makes sense. You know, it, it would take a genius-level intellect, effectively, to crack the code on something that people had been talking about through the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s to finally make it work, make it work well, and have it pop. He claimed that Craig Wright was involved and that a specific individual wrote the white paper, but he refuses to name the author due to concern of their safety. So he knows. So he knows. It's very intriguing. Christian, I'd, I'd love to know if there's anything else that maybe John has uh, referred to about this group, because outside of that, it's super open-ended, much like a lot of these things, but it's very intriguing to think about a team of individuals working on this. And it, and it does make sense when you start to look into the deeper technology of blockchain. Yeah, unfortunately, he hasn't really elaborated further. Uh, the funny thing is he actually, this story about his suspicions came out back in May, so it's fairly recent. So it's only just beginning to emerge how John McAfee might be involved. Correct. Gotcha. His side of the story, at least. He talked to the website Cointelegraph, which is just a cryptocurrency website, and he did an interview with them. He says, it was a team of 11 people over a period of five years that came up with Bitcoin, as we said. And then he says he knows who Nakamoto is and who the author of the white paper is. He says, I've spoken to him on the phone, but he doesn't want to reveal their identity because he says that he could potentially, quote unquote, end up destroying an innocent man's life forever and probably cause his death. I mean, that makes sense. Just look at how Dorian Nakamoto was treated as soon as people thought he was the guy. And there was no other reason to think it was him other than the article that said it was him off of a kind of vague quote they just kind of decided and while he wasn't necessarily in danger still the influx of attention yeah and satoshi didn't waste any time in saying yo that's not me and kind of quelled that immediately so i can i can totally see how if an actual individual was like mcafee here stepped forward and said yeah uh you're all sort of right you know craig wright is involved there are several other people so you're kind of all sniffing down the right paths but it's this person, like this is the author. That I can see would be problematic for that individual. Especially somebody who clearly wanted anonymity, right? Yeah. Again, insane that, I mean, I can completely believe that it's a group of people, right? Like stuff like this, it's just, there's so much to take on. But again, those, like if it was five people, those five people not saying anything, their family members, et cetera, like that's just, whoo, man, that's. It's very fortunate for them, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, for someone not to just say something. Right. It's uh, it's interesting, and it makes you actually wonder if John McAfee was one of those eleven individuals. But in closing, we don't know exactly who it is, and perhaps someday we'll have an update episode to address any other information that comes out. Perhaps there will be a solution at some point. Maybe we'll figure it out. It's funny that everybody accused of being Satoshi has denied it. And then everyone who has claimed to be Satoshi has been disproven. So it really remains open-ended. It's one of those things that has just enough intrigue with just enough facts, but not too many, that it keeps people hungry to figure it out, especially with Bitcoin being such a strong mainstream piece of, uh, of currency now. It's almost like a, an investment material, you could like a stock. 
Um, and it's a household name at this point as well. So as time goes on, it's only going to be more intriguing. And it seems like every time the value of the Bitcoin goes up, this conversation comes flying back to the forefront. So we'll see what happens, you know, down the line. I mean, the key to unlocking this secret is through John. I'm saying it right now. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I feel like, if, I don't know. You don't think it's a software play? <sighs> Trying to get his name out there? It's worth mentioning that he's also been known to make ridiculous claims like this before, so we don't know how reliable his testimony is. Who knows, man? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I just don't know how, like, how big of a play that is, you know? Right. But I think, it, you know, if he has direct contact with the said person, then I, I would, you know, be looking out to him. And, you know, I would think that other hackers are like all right let me let me check and make sure let me run surveillance and make sure he doesn't slip <laughs> up and contact him so i can yeah. get to uh i can get to whoever i want to get to you know man i feel like john mcafee just put a target on his back for hackers that's so he better exactly. stay far away oh, from this guy and i'm sure he will be for people that just want to i mean he can use his own antivirus software to protect yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> now now releasing the mcafee identity software Protect your identity today. Who knows? Because God knows, knows? I need to protect mine. <laughs> <laughs> also, I've disappeared. And it was a recorded video. We pan out. It was a VCR player all along. Who was John McAfee? New mystery everywhere. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Would not be surprised. Wow. Well, this was, a, this was another exciting one. If you all enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to rate the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. It really means a lot to us. And if you want to follow us on social media, we'll be posting some visual assets that might help expand a little bit of what you heard here. You can find us on Twitter at RedWebPod. And you can also uh, recommend any mysteries. If you stumble onto any mysteries while you're browsing the internet and you see something interesting um, that piques your interest, we're always open ears. Let us know. Hit us up there. And uh, we'll see you next Monday and every Monday after that with a new mystery. Ooh, not not non spooky mysteries though. Ooh, we might get spooky. No, I don't want to get spooky. We'll, we'll trickle save in that. a couple maybe, spooky ones. Maybe in October. We'll get spooky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna go ahead and go out on a limb and say, uh, you're gonna be sick all of October, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm out mm. that month. Yeah, mm. I'm not Shame. here. Shame. <laughs> Shame. We can we can pre-record these all we need. <laughs> I'll get you. I'll get you. Thanks for listening, Thanks. everybody. We'll see you next week. We hope you've been enjoying Red Web, and as I mentioned before, word of mouth is the best way to support the podcast. And speaking of word of mouth, since we know that you love true crime, you should check out our friend's podcast called Black Box Down. In each episode of Black Box Down, lifelong aviation enthusiast Gustavo Sorolla and his co-host Chris Damaris tell the story of a different plane disaster and the insane circumstances that led to the crash. So if you love Red Web, search for Black Box Down wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe today. It's a true crime podcast in the air.